passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Uh, I'd like to begin by just thanking you who were here last week. Uh, last week, you remember, was Valentine's Day. Remember that? And I told you I was really sort of still undecided about what to do for my wife for Valentine's. So I asked you guys if you could send in suggestions of things I should do. And I especially asked those of you who are watching online, hey, connect with me, send in some suggestions of what I can do. And uh, the best suggestion I received was from somebody who was actually watching in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And they suggested that what I do is I make a, a heart-shaped calzone and serve it to Cindy for dinner. So that's what I did, by the way. So you see, I made a heart-shaped calzone, and I gave it to Cindy for dinner, and she was happy with it. So thank you for joining us for worship, if you're online, and thank you for your great ideas and helping me out for Valentine's Day. That was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, today, we are continuing in our study of 2 Timothy. And you remember about this letter? This is the last letter that Paul wrote uh, Paul had, had been arrested by Nero. Paul would soon be uh, executed by Nero. He was writing this letter to a young man named Timothy, who was a, a pastor in his 30s, who was actually pastoring the church of Ephesus. Paul had begun that church. He had planted that church, but he knew that as soon as he left, things would fall apart. In fact, when he had his last meeting with the Ephesian elders... He warned them that this was going to happen. And if you have your outlines, you'll see I put that right on the top of your outline where Paul said this to the Ephesian elders. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Remember this part where it says, arising from your own selves, because that'll be really important as we continue to move on. See, this is exactly what happened. Paul left, Timothy picked up pastoring there, and there was all kinds of opposition against him. Last week, we talked about the opposition that Christians faced in Ephesus from the culture of Rome. But here we see that there was opposition because bad pastors, false teachers, rose up inside of this church and decided to twist the gospel. So Paul writes this letter to second, of 2 Timothy, hopefully to encourage Timothy, to help him as he's feeling discouraged and overwhelmed. You know, what he has done already in the first chapter is he told Timothy he really needs to change the way he thinks about his job as a pastor. He needs to think about himself more like a soldier. Guess what, Timothy? People are going to be shooting at you all day long. Just get used to it. Think of yourself like an athlete. I mean, this is not an easy job. This is the job where you always have to work and try your absolute best, knowing that the prize comes from Jesus, and he'll be the one that reward, will reward you. But you have to work hard. And by the way, realize that you're like a farmer. There's a lot of hard work on the front end, and you don't see much results. But in the future, that's when the harvest will come. A new generation of Christians who are faithful to Jesus. We also learned last week that um, he encouraged Timothy to be bold in the face of opposition. Sure, and Nero is 
capturing Christians. Sure, he is executing Christians, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be bold for Jesus. You should always be bold and outspoken for Jesus, no matter what the opposition. Remember the key reason we learned last week? Is because the reward always outweighs the sacrifice. The reward for being bold for Christ outweighs the sacrifice for Christ. Well, this week, we start a new section in this letter. Uh, well, this section will take two weeks to cover. And in this section, what Paul is going to do, he's going to tell Timothy, let me explain to you what it means to be a good pastor. Because that's your job. And that's important. Because in the city of Ephesus, there's a lot of bad pastors. There's bad teachers, false teachers who have arisen. And so... Paul needs to explain to Timothy what it looks like to do his job and to do it well. Be a good pastor. By the way, this is important for us. We live in a time where we have the internet. You can connect with any pastor in the world at this point and listen to their teaching. We live in a time during the pandemic where a lot of people have been connecting with all kinds of other pastors online. And many of them are very gifted. But the question becomes, while they may have the applause of crowds, are they men who have the applause of God? They may be popular pastors, but are they actually good and faithful pastors? That is what we're going to find out today. How do you make those evaluative judgments of those who you should follow and listen to? So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The verses we're going to be looking at this morning are verses 14 through 19. Out of reverence for the Word of God, I'd ask you to stand as I, as I read from God's Word. And if you can, follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word in front of you. Paul writes, Remind them of these things, and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they're upsetting the faith of, faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. This is how this passage breaks apart. It gives us six points where Paul explains to Timothy what a good pastor looks like. Three points where then he explains what a bad pastor looks like. And then he comes around at the end and he says, well, since we're in a world with a lot of bad teachers and bad pastors, what should Christians do about that? And how should we live in that world? So that's the outline. Three, three big points, but a number of subpoints. And we're going to keep moving because there's a lot to cover here. All good stuff, though. First point, what is a good pastor? 
And he starts with this. A good pastor reminds people of what they actually already know. He says this. Remind them of these things. Timothy's job is to remind people. And what is it you remind them of? What Paul has already taught them. Paul has taught them the, the gospel message. Timothy is not to be creative and start coming up with new things. He's not to make anything up. He's to remind God's people of the old things that Paul has taught them. And then you say, well, wait a minute. Then Paul got to be creative, and Timothy doesn't get to be creative. Not true. Actually, Paul didn't get to make anything up either. Paul was just to share the gospel message that he had received from Jesus. Look what it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to me, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, Paul says, to testify to the gospel of the grace of, of God. Timothy doesn't get to make up new things, just to remind people of the old things that Paul taught them. Paul didn't get to make up new things. He had to teach people what Jesus taught him is the, the gospel message. So that's what a good pastor does. Reminds people of what they already know. Helps people apply what they already know. Or as we like to say it around here, a good pastor keeps their finger in the text and doesn't try to get creative. Now you say, are there people out there who get creative? Oh, yes. I was thinking about this. I was talking with Pastor Shane this week as he was getting ready to teach membership class. I gave him a quote off of the Evangelical or the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America's website. And they just come right out and say, we think that maybe the authors of scriptures missed what God was saying or doing, or that now God is saying or doing something new so we can ignore the authors of scripture. We get to make up new stuff. That's the definition of what a bad pastor does. A good pastor stays faithful to the text and reminds people of what they already know. And this is important because isn't it so easy to forget? Forget what you know? We live in a world where we're constantly being hit with new information. And because we're processing new things, we so easily forget the old things. Some of you know that I'm involved in what is an Ironman group. An Ironman group is a, we're four guys that get together once a week. We hold each other accountable towards memorizing a verse of scripture that we recite to our own choosing, that we get to recite to one another. Uh, we hold each other accountable for reading our Bibles, and we hold each other, we just, you know, share with one another, and we pray for one another. Just once a week, we get together like that. And all the guys in the group, I mean, it's not like the Bible's a new thing to us. We've known the Bible for a while, but we started talking this past week about how God has changed us because we're always memorizing a part of God's word and reading a part of God's word. How God's, con the constant reminder of God's word has changed our life. We were talking about the things we used to watch on television. And now if we see those same programs, we're like, what were we thinking? How could we watch this? Where was our brain well, where did that come from? The constant reminder of God's word has slowly reprogrammed our lives and reprogrammed our thinking. 
because if we aren't reminded, it's so easy to drift away. So that's the first thing we see that a good pastor does. And by the way, um, this is also seen in Scripture, just so you can see here. I put this down on your bulletins. There's a number of places where it talks about things like this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, because it's so easy to forget. Next point, a good pastor reminds people of God's presence in their life. And I want to focus on the underlying section in your outline where it says this, I chart and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And I want to look at the part where he says, I want you to charge them before God. Charge uh, means talk to them uh, you know, about something very important. And sort of like that you would tell your kids not to play in traffic with those kind of words. You know, you better listen to what I'm saying. But he says here, you charge them before God. In other words, don't let them forget that God is watching our lives. God knows all there is to know about our lives, and he is the one we have to please with our lives. God is watching. Now, typically, I'll tell you what bad pastors do. Bad pastors make their teaching all about self-help. Let me give you five ways to have a happy family. Five ways to be financially successful. Because for bad pastors, they like to focus on, it's all about you being the center of the world. And you being happy. But the reality is, God is the one who is the center of the universe. What matters is our relationship with him. And he knows everything there is to know about us. We are not fooling him in the least. Now, does he love us? Yes, incredibly so. That's why he sent his own son. But he is the one we have to please. Talking about God's omniscience of our life, uh, Psalm 44, verse 21. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Or Acts 15, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And I say this because a good pastor is always mindful of the fact that you live before God. I say this because I know a few weeks ago I mentioned about Ravi Zacharias and some of the things that were going on in his life that he kept hidden from the public for years about sexual improprieties and now it's all coming out. And by the way, since I mentioned it, it's been on the cover article of Christianity Today and he may have fooled people, but folks, he didn't fool God. God knew everything that was going on. And God knows us, and he's the one we have to please. Next thing, a good pastor steers people away from pointless conflicts. It's the next section of this verse. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Tell them... God is watching. Do not be someone who ends up quarreling about small and pointless things. The Greek here literally says, don't wage a war over words. Now, this isn't saying you can't discuss theology. This isn't saying you can't figure out how to apply theology. This isn't saying you can't even have disagreements on what the Bible may be saying. That's not what it's talking about. 
it's saying that you really need to be careful what you choose to fight over and then choose to divide the church over. It better not be a small thing, a pointless thing, like the petty disagreement over the meaning of a word. God is watching. Don't divide his church over trivial cases. Now, you just may say, well, what does it look like to wage a war over words that ends up dividing a, a church? And as I was studying this week and I was thinking about this, what came to mind is something that took place in my life uh, uh, years ago. And it's, I'll just give it in a very cloaked way. I had put a simple gospel message presentation in a bulletin. It was, number one, confess your sins. Number two, trust in Jesus to forgive your sin. And number three, follow Jesus with your life. That sounds pretty straightforward, pretty basic. And then a few weeks later, after putting that in a bulletin, somebody wrote me and said, I think you've got the gospel wrong uh, because we're saved by God's grace through faith. And you said we're supposed to follow him with our life. And I think you're adding works to faith. I'm like, well, no, it's not what I'm saying. You misunderstand what I'm trying to communicate. When you are saved by Jesus, there will be a life that is changed that results in you wanting to follow Jesus. If you trusted in Jesus to save you and you have no desire to follow him, then maybe you don't even know him. And this ended up in an email exchange. It went back and forth and longer emails and longer emails. And I'm like, this is not good. This person does not want to budge. And so I ended up going to the elders. and Guys, elders, help me. Here's my emails. Here's the correspondence. Am I doing anything wrong? Am I seeing anything wrong? I, I just want to be above board on this. And the result was the person said, I, I, I think that you're adding works to grace and I'm going to leave the church. I'm like, how can you leave the church over bickering over the meaning of a small word? Why make a big deal on such a small thing? God is watching. God cares. This is his body. This is his family. This does not please him. That's what Paul's talking about. A good pastor will not wage wars over small and pointless things that ends up dividing God's body. It's not pleasing to the Lord. By the way, um, let me just um, mention, I think that our, our denomination does a good job of avoiding what I call small and pointless conflicts. One of the things I like about the Evangelical Free Church, uh, we have a small statement of faith we keep the main things are the plain things, and that knits us together, and we agree to not divide and not fight over what we would call more debatable things. For instance, uh, I'll give you some examples. Infant dedication or infant baptism. Well, 95% of the evangelical free churches practice infant dedication. But if somebody really wants to do infant baptism, and they realize that that baptism is not saving their child, it's not imbuing grace to their child. It's like a wet dedication. Fine. We're not going to agree to, we're not going to start fighting over this kind of stuff and split the church over this kind of stuff. Jesus is bigger than that. How about uh, if you want to talk about adult believer baptism? Now, 95% of evangelical free churches practice baptism by immersion. I personally think that's the best, most scriptural way. Baptizo means to dunk and to immerse. 
But I know some churches historically have done baptism by sprinkling. If somebody really wants to be sprinkled or feels there's a reason they need to be sprinkled to be baptized, we're not going to split the church over that kind of stuff, guys. I'll give you an example. I had a lady who came down with cancer, and she was in the end of her battle with cancer. was not going to live too much longer. She became a Christian. Great story. Amazing life change. She says, I want to be baptized. And at the time of the church I pastored, we were by a lake, and we always did baptisms in the lake. And the doctor said, you are not going in that lake, not in your condition. So she said, could, could you sprinkle me? <laughs> no problem. We're not going to fight over that kind of stuff. Jesus is bigger. We're not going to divide his church. Another quick example, end times. Well, we agree on Jesus is coming back. Right? We agree with that. We agree that there will be a resurrection of our bodies. These are all abundantly clear things in Scripture. We agree in the new heavens, the new earth, abundantly clear in Scripture. But exactly uh, the way it recurs and what's the timing of who goes, who goes first, what goes second, I don't know, who's on third base. You know, we're not going to split the church over the exact timing of the unfolding of the events of the end times. It's silly to divide Christ's church over those things. And a good pastor will not divide Christ's church over those things, is what Paul is saying. Another one. A good pastor is working hard for God's approval. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And I like the way the ESV translates this, as do your best. If you're from Awana and you've used the King James, it says study to show yourself approved. Study is actually not the best translation other than the fact that it involves hard work. But what he's saying here, Timothy, do your absolute best. A good pastor is not a lazy person. A good pastor is a hard worker. I was thinking about this, and it reminds me of the CrossFit class. I've told you guys I'm in CrossFit, and this is the worst part of CrossFit. Um, they always have a, a section of the workout where it's 8 to 12 minutes of constant exercises where you get absolutely no rest between any of them. Like 12 minutes straight. And your brain has two ways of handling that. One is you're like, I'm going to slow down, take it easy, not going to get my heart rate up, just going to get through these 12 minutes and it will all be fine, which is the lazy way to handle it. Or you can say, I'm going to push right to my edge, keep myself right to the edge of exhaustion, give my absolute best all the way through. That's what Paul says to Timothy. A good pastor gives their absolute best all the way through and doesn't try to get lazy. And by the way, why do you give your best? Because you're seeking God's approval. He knows if you're giving your best or not. Remember, he knows everything there is to know about your life. And that's what he's asking. He's just asking you to do your best. He's not asking you to be somebody you're not. He says, just be who I made you to be. But just do it with the absolute best energy and passion with the gifts and skills I've given you. That's all I'm asking. And by the way, you're not looking, he says, for the approval of the congregation. Sometimes you may have to disagree with the congregation. Hopefully not much. <laughs> but you're looking for God's approval. He's the one who knows your heart and your life. Paul said this in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God. He's the one who tests our hearts and knows our hearts. Next one. A good pastor rightly handles the word of God, he says. Be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. Timothy, see yourself as a worker, a workman. You are a craftsman, so do a good job in your craft so that you will not be ashamed of the product you produce. What was a pastor? What is the product you produce? You have to rightly handle and rightfully teach the word of God. When it says rightly handling the word of God, the Greek here says, cut straight the word of God. Timothy, don't cut the word of God crooked. And here's where I think this comes from. We know that Paul was a tent maker. And if you've ever seen animal skins, they do not come straight. They come completely misshapen. But you have to sew those together to make a tent. And so a workman had to cut them carefully and had to cut them accurately. Otherwise, they looked pretty gnarly when you tried to stitch them together. And you knew if somebody was a shoddy workman because they didn't do a good job when they cut their animal skins. Well, Paul says to Timothy, cut the word of God straight. Don't cut it crooked. Don't, let, don't be ashamed of your product. So, a pastor must cut the word of God faithfully, truthfully, accurately teaching it to the people. Today, there's many people out there who claim to be Bible teachers, who claim to be pastors, who are not cutting the word of God straight. And when they stand before God, they will be ashamed of the product they produced. Now, I'm going to give you some examples. First, I'll give you a verse that's often misapplied. You ever heard Jeremiah 29, 11? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in the future. For years, that was quoted to people all over the place. But is that rightly using that verse? Is that verse intended to apply to all people? for all time? When Jeremiah wrote it, he was talking to those who were exiles in the year 600 B.C. that God would return them to the promised land. That was the primary application of that verse. It doesn't mean that every single person is going to have a wonderful life. That's a misapplication of it. It's not cutting it straight. It's misusing it. Now, I'm going to give you another example. The prosperity gospel. The word of faith movement. Let me tell you how they define faith. They say faith is a powerful personal force that enables you to express supernatural energy that overcomes all restrictions and enables you to create the world you want. Where do you find that one in Scripture? Your faith enables you to overcome all restrictions and create the world you want. That's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is the message of people like Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, 
Robert Tilton, just to name a few. Folks, you do not find that in Scripture, that your faith enables you to create the world that you want. That's not cutting the Word of God straight. I will tell you some of the things that the Bible does say. Instead of enabling you to have health, wealth, and prosperity, it says this, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, by the way, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Another one I'll mention is Joel Olstein. Now, I know some of you guys love him. And some of you guys will talk to me after this and get real upset that I talked about Joel Olstein. And I'm not saying that everything he has ever said is untrue. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that he many times has not faithfully cut in a straight line the Word of God. And he's misrepresented it. And you say, well, prove it to me. That's why I put these notes in your outline. So we can go with some of the quotes. In his book, Your Best Life Now, he makes the following claims. God wants, you, wants to make your life easier. He wants to assist you, to promote you, to give you advantages. He wants you to have preferential treatment. We get what we want from God by our faith-filled word. Where do you find that in Scripture? I don't know anywhere. Another one. He claims God gives him priority seating in restaurants and the best parking spots in malls because of his faith. In his book, he says this to his son. You watch, Daddy. I'm going to get a front row parking spot. I can just feel it. I've got the favor of God all over me. So where does it say in the Bible, if you just have faith-filled words, you'll get front row parking spots? Is he cutting the word of God straight or is he cutting it crooked? Some more examples. He claims the reasons the Israelites wandered in the wilderness because of their, was because of their lack of faith and their lack of self-esteem. Just felt, you know, had more self-esteem, they would be out of there in at least 38 years, not 40. God promised, there's another one, Abraham and Sarah, a son. He claims the only reason Sarah didn't conceive Isaac until she was old was because she didn't have enough faith in her heart so she could conceive him in her body. Sarah, it was all your fault. You just didn't have enough faith-filled words. That's not cutting the word of God straight. That's making shoddy workmanship as a preacher, and one day he's not going to be real happy when he has to stand before God for that one. Next one. A good pastor doesn't waste time in pointless talk in cultural hobby horses, he says but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. What is irreverent babble? The NIV translates this as godless chatter. What it is literally, uh, it means empty-headed words. As a pastor, don't waste your talk on things that have no spiritual benefit for your people. And don't waste your words on things that do not build up the church. So good pastors don't waste their words on pointless things. Now, have you been around a pastor who is given to what I would call godless chatter? Likes to spend all their time talking about cultural hobby horses? I'll give you an example of that. Some pastors like to spend all their time talking about politics 
instead of Jesus. Some pastors like to spend all their time talking about gay rights instead of Jesus. Some pastors like to talk about the Green New Deal instead of Jesus. Or the immigration policies and the border wall instead of Jesus. Now I'm not saying that those things have no value, but they have no eternal value. A hundred years from now, it's not going to matter what your political position was on an issue. What matters is do you know Jesus Christ and have you trusted him as your Savior? That is what matters a hundred years from now. So good pastors don't waste their time on things that don't build up the church. They don't waste their time on godless chatter. Now, what is the danger of godless chatter? He says this. It leads the entire church to become more ungodly. Instead of the church uh, being woke, instead of the church being hip, instead of the church being relevant, godless chatter by a pastor makes the church ungodly. In fact, it leaves the church diseased. Diseases that spread like gangrene that actually take away life. Now, let's look at the other side. What is a bad pastor? He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Hymenaeus and Philetus are examples of bad pastors. They've swerved from the truth. Uh, by the way, Hymenaeus, this is not the first time we've seen him. He showed up in 1 Timothy, not just 2 Timothy. Let's see what happened to him in 1 Timothy. Holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Hymenaeus has shipwrecked his faith. Paul has kicked him out of the church, handed him over to Satan, hoping that he would learn not to blaspheme God. Hymenaeus, unfortunately, did not leave the city of Ephesus. Remember how Paul said, by the way, that people will arise from your own number? We talked about that in the Acts in the very beginning. Here's the example. To draw people away, Hymenaeus is one of them. What Hymenaeus did is he just went down the street and started another church. And here he has a guy working with him, a guy named Philetus. So it's sort of like you got Bert and Ernie, you know, Larry and Bob, you know, the Veggie Tales. You got two guys here working against the church. And what do we learn about these guys as the bad pastors? Number one, a bad pastor strays from the trustworthy word as taught by the apostles. No surprise here. We've been talking about that for a while. And Hymenaeus and Philetus have completely rejected Paul and his teaching, the trustworthy word taught by the apostles. The second thing we learn is this, and here's where it's going to start to get interesting. A bad pastor teaches people they can have their best life now. What were Hymenaeus and Philetus teaching? That the resurrection had already taken place. 
Well, we know what the resurrection is. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, was given his resurrection body. It was not a dead body. It was a living body. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, it's filled with strength. It's filled with power. There is no sickness. This resurrection body lasts forever. That's what we are looking forward to. One day we die, we go home to be with Jesus, but one day Christ will return and resurrect our self-same bodies from the dead and put our spirits back together with our bodies, but there'll be resurrection bodies. That'll be a great day. We look forward to that. Here are these two guys saying the resurrection has already taken place. Have your resurrection life now. Have your resurrection body now at my church. All your sickness will go away. God will heal you. Have a successful life now. Have your finances now. What are they teaching? Did you guys make the connection? The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Have all the benefits of the resurrected life now in this life. And Paul says that is a false gospel message. So, folks, that is one of the great qualities you find of a bad Bible teacher. Teaching all the benefits of Christ's resurrection, all the benefits that are ours in the future, here and now. And that's not necessarily true. He says this, a bad pastor destroys people's faith. He says literally that you're overturning the faith of some. That means, or upsetting the faith of some. That means they're destroying people's faith. And by the way, you know why people's faith are destroyed? Well, I went to Hymenaeus and Philetus' church, and they said I could have a resurrection life now, but I'm still sick. I, I gave them my money, but I'm still poor. Because <laughs> they're not preaching the gospel. They departed from the gospel message. All right, the application. How is a Christian to survive in a world filled with bad pastors who don't teach the truth? Here's what Paul says. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You say, how does that connect? Here's how it works. You may not recognize it, but he put in two quotes there. Those two quotes come from Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers 16, the situation was Korah's rebellion against Moses. Do you guys remember what happened in Korah's rebellion? Korah, and he had a group of followers who said, no, we don't think, Moses, that you should be leader over us. I'm going to lead a rebellion against you. There was, by the way, 250 chiefs who joined Korah in his rebellion. This is the first time you have a false teacher arising up from inside of God's people attempting to lead many astray, which is exactly the same thing that has happened in Ephesus with Hymenaeus and Philetus trying to lead people astray. They rose up from inside the church, and now they're trying to lead people away from the church. And what Paul says is we can learn from Korah and his rebellion about how to handle this situation. And here's the first thing they need to know. Number one, know that God protects his elect from a false teacher's deception. Moses said this after Korah and his followers rose up. 
He said, God will show those who are his. Or as it says here, God knows those who are his. He said to God's people, you step away from Korah and his followers. And if you're following God and following me, come next to me. What this is talking about is the issue of election. God's people who have been chosen from eternity past will not be deceived by false teachers. They will be able to see them as false teachers and turn away from them. That's what happened with Korah and his rebellion. That's what, hap- that's what will happen, Paul says to Timothy, right there with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Those who are truly elect, those who truly know God, will see them as false teachers and turn away from them. And it's an issue of comfort. Even though you see a lot of people leaving the church, none of the gods elect will ultimately be deceived by them. Number two, here's what you're to do. You're to identify the false teachers and then distance ourselves from them. Because this is what we see happened in Numbers chapter 16. Paul told God's, or Moses told God's people uh, to distance themselves from Korah and his rebellion. And it's a good thing they did, because what happened next, Ken? The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his followers, and that was the end of them. It's a good thing we distanced ourselves from them. (laughs) Wouldn't want to be standing next to them when that happened. And that's what Paul says to Timothy. Tell your people, identify those who are false teachers, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, explain why they are false teachers. They say the resurrection has already happened. And then tell your people, just distance yourself from them because God will ultimately judge them. And you don't want to be standing next to them when that happens, do you? So, we learned how to deal with false teachers. We've learned how to deal with bad pastors. We've learned how to deal with those who are not faithfully presenting the gospel. You, number one, know that those who have truly chosen by Christ will not be deceived by them. And number two, you identify them, explain what is wrong with them, and then you distance yourself from them and let God take care of the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. A lot of stuff in this passage about what it means to be a good pastor and what it looks like when you have a bad pastor. We are in a time in history where there are many people, Lord, that are not faithfully handling your word, not cutting it straight. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, give us good eyes that would be able to see the deceptions of false teachers so we can avoid them, and that we would uh, distance ourselves from them, and that we would draw near to you, that we would draw near to your word, which reminds us of the truth. And we would faithfully keep our finger in the text. Steer us close to you, Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.